How's everyone doing? Great. Welcome to BAYA 2023. This panel will be on the Internet of Medical Things and the Convergence of Cybersecurity and Biomedical Engineering in the Healthcare Industry. If you're curious, today's session is 2451, and today is February 10th, 2023. My name is Dominique Hinton, and I will be serving as your moderator today. This panel has several members with extensive bios, so I will try to do them a little justice. But if you want to know more about them, um, all their bios are on the conference application, and you can find that easily on the application store um, of your individual devices. That would be the Career Communications Group app. Um, first, I'll start with introducing Mr. Stephen Austin. Stephen is currently an Associate Director of Cybersecurity Engineering at Raytheon Technologies. He holds a Master's in Information Assurance and Software Engineering, and he is currently pursuing a Doctorate in Cybersecurity Analytics. Next is Mr. Ernest Smiley. Ernest is the founder and CEO of Georgetown Analytics, which focuses on data science, artificial intelligence, and predictive analytics platform. They also support geospatial investments, cyber talent management, and healthcare ecosystem opportunities throughout the United States. And last but certainly not least, Mr. Christopher Jock. Chris started his science and business career over 35 years ago. Chris has held various roles in his career from lab bench scientist as an outsourced contract lab services divisional manager to regional and global business unit executive. As I mentioned earlier, the full bios of today's members will be found in the conference app. This and all the Bay of seminars are live presentations. They will be recorded and posted within 24 hours for on-demand use. We will take questions from our in-person audience later in the session. For those who are possibly joining us online, you can ask questions using the Slido tool. Use your cell phone to scan the QR code at the bottom of the screen to access the session's chat feature. If you want to receive any CEU or PhD credits for the session, please click on the link in your seminar session. Right, and now we will go ahead and get started. We will be starting off with Mr. Christopher Jock, and he will be um, giving us a short story on how everything integrates. You know, for me, when I thought about this topic and was actually invited to be a panelist here, kind of create a more real environment for it. So how does the internet of medical things, how has it touched me? So I'll give a couple examples. One is related to my wife. My wife has been a type 1 diabetic for 50 years. And anybody that knows things about diabetes, you gotta inject, you gotta test your blood. It's a very, not a very patient-friendly type of process, um, aside from the medical consequences of that. Well, several years ago, we were introduced to this technology called Dexcom. And Dexcom is a, um, a device that has a, a system of, of sensors, transmitters, and receivers that allows the continuous monitoring of her glucose level. So it eliminated the need to do the finger sticks on a fairly frequent basis daily. So it was a continuous, every five minutes, the blood glucose level would be updated. So that's, that in itself was great. But the really important thing was is that I travel a lot. So her device can actually be downloaded as an app. So one, she can, if she's traveling, she's in the mall or wherever she happens to be, she can just pull out her smart device 
and she can get an, an instant reading of what her blood sugars are. So if it's going up or going down, she can then adjust accordingly, right? But the really beautiful thing about this, and again, where it touches me personally, like I said, I travel a lot. Well, I can actually download the app and I can actually monitor it sitting here while we're talking and I can say, oh my gosh, I gotta give my wife a call. Her blood sugar is going low, right? Because I can set my device through the Dexcom application to monitor that. Now obviously there's, as it relates to cybersecurity, there's patient information and so all of those uh, kind of IT cybersecurity issues need to be resolved. But for me, on a personal level, that's how internet of medical things are impacting me directly and specifically my wife. So again, if I'm in Europe, I'm traveling, and I got connection, I can monitor. Not that I can do anything when I'm in the UK, but I can call a relative or I can make some arrangements to ensure that she's she's taken care of. So again, I think there's a personal, um, you know, how it touches me personally. And again, ensuring that all the systems work properly from an IT, that the data is being sent up and received and transmitted in a in a safe, secure environment is critically important. And then on a direct personal level, I have hearing aids. While I'm sitting here, I decided I don't want to listen to anything, I just turn everybody off, right? On my smart not, not that I'm gonna do that, but but if I'm in certain situations, I can sit there and I can you wouldn't even know it. I can sit here and just tap it and I can I can adjust my hearing aids to the environment that I'm in if I'm not. So again, the data is being sent up, received, and my hearing aids will then adjust as needed. So again, there's a couple applications. The point that I'm trying to make with that is one is how the Internet of Medical Things impacted me directly on a personal level. And I'm sure we all have stories like that. But the, the issue there is you've got data that's being generated, sent to the cloud, transmitted back down through the Internet, and obviously that all has to be secured. It has to comply with regulations, you know, security, you know, IT regulations, uh, patient regulations, data protection, data privacy uh, requirements as well. So I just wanted to share that little you know, personal story that how medical, the internet of medical things are impacting me on a personal level. And there's other examples I'm sure we can all think about as well. But the importance of you all in helping ensure that our devices are secure, the information is secure, and it's not being um, taken advantage of by nefarious actors that are out there. There's certainly not a lack of them. So, anyway, so I just thank you for letting me share that story. So. Thank you. Now we will get started with some of the questions we have. First will be, how are patients, providers, and payers holistically benefiting from a cross-functional slash disciplined approach to solving problems and challenges? For the role that I fit in, so I'm, I'm on the, the science side of things. So I'm not an IT professional, I'm not a security, cybersecurity person at all. So I speak at it from a, from a patient point of view where the, the, um, the use of digital health, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but the use of digital health in, in improving and encouraging compliance to medicines. So a lot of applications to help patients be able to, to kind of triage, kiosk, seek information in real time, but they're also sharing personal information, so you have to make sure that that's in a secure environment. But I would say, you know, some of the, the key things, again, that, you know, where patients are benefiting from holistically is one is they get their answers 
to their questions quicker. Uh, they've got access to information quicker. Uh, they can upload and receive feedback in a more real-time telehealth type of environment. Um, the payers um, obviously get a much more uh, credible um, information because it can all be tracked. So when, when um, uh, reimbursement has to be made or they're um, looking for reimbursement, that they can they, they have that all tracked and it's, it's all credible and accurate information. And then providers, obviously, they have a much more convenient way of interacting with the patients, right? Instead of coming into the office, my wife, again, she's, she has, especially during COVID-19, she was able to do a lot of her appointments remotely through FaceTime and things of that nature with her various specialists that she has to have. So again, I think holistically where the internet and the connectedness of internet uh, medical, of medical things is, is really helping all of those cross sections of the healthcare ecosystem. The next question will be, what is the role of scientists, engineers, data scientists, and cybersecurity professionals in this transformation? Um, we'll go ahead and start off with Mr. Smiley and then move down. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, I think the role of uh, the whole uh, cybersecurity data science in this whole area is uh, it's very, very important. The, uh, the impact um, across the board, cybersecurity especially, has been uh, growing in different areas outside of the oh, Internet of Things, especially as far as, as far as the medical care. So some of the examples would be uh, how cybersecurity is being used, especially like in areas like with FDA, with, um, with the uh, impact of uh, drugs and drug control, and also in, is uh, impacting across NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology, how that uh, actually impacts the uh, actually growth, uh, the, the actual the different organization needs to learn and grow from that. Yep. So I'll sort of piggyback on uh, some of the stories that Chris uh, was given. Uh, I'm on, my background is securing embedded systems and uh, security operations centers. Uh, when you look at it from a cybersecurity perspective, it's mainly about the team and the mission. And the mission in this case is making sure medical professionals and patients are getting the data and operations that they need. So from a cybersecurity perspective, I like to look at it from the OSI models starting at the lowest level, which is uh, the physical devices. One of the things that are impacting a lot in this field is supply chain. So there's a lot of counterfeit parts and things of that nature. So what if someone was able to counterfeit a part that's someone's heart pacer or, or who has a key function in this overall mission, then that could impact the patient, right? Uh, the next layer that I like to look at is data communications. Um, there's a lot of technologies out there as far as securing the information as it goes up to the cloud. Uh, there's a lot of laws out there like HIPAA uh, that if you violate uh, any patient uh, information that can come with a fine or even prison time if it's even that se se severe. So mainly when I look at it from cybersecurity, it's just mainly making sure that the uh, patients and doctors are able to get what they need. Yeah, I, I, mean, I guess you know, from a scientist's point of view, I mean, obviously scientists need to understand the technology environment where R&D is going, where clinical research is going, how medical field is being transformed. And so they have to certainly um, learn some of the lingo, they have to learn uh, some of the technology, they have to actually get pre-immersed in the, in the different technologies and how the di different technologies are being 
integrated to advance the R&D, and again, I'm speaking from a scientist point of view, is how do we, how do we effectively utilize the massive, massive amounts of data sets that are being generated on a daily basis and be able to, to get to those decisions in a much quicker period of time to advance the development of therapies, medical products, combination products, while also making sure that that data is secure and protected because they're using the cloud to throw the data up into and then they need to extract it. So, you know, I think, you know, the, 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 the days are gone where you could just be a computer scientist. The days are gone where you could just be a lab scientist. The days are gone where you can be uh, just a medical you know, professional. You have to have certainly your core expertise, like my colleagues to my right have, but you also have to have an awareness of the regulations. You have to have the impacts of what, what, you know, what can happen if you don't comply with those regulations and making sure your systems are, are uh, are secure, are, are hardened against any of those types of uh, potential nefarious attacks. And again, scientists you know, need to understand, you know, what are the tools that are out there to help them, enable them to do their research, and then working with their IT professionals. So they have to understand, and the, you know, one of the growing areas within the science community is these computational scientists. So your computational biologists, your computational chemists, your computational physicists, where they have to have an understanding of the software, they have to understand the security environments, the, the, the cyber security issues, they have to understand the science. And then the IT professionals, the computer science professionals also have to understand the physical science, the life sciences, right? So when they create these data, uh, when they create these, these systems or integrate systems, how is that information being effectively trans transferred or moved around so you're not losing valuable information. So it's very much of a cross-functional team and skill sets. And my advice to the young people out there is get as diverse as you can in your exposure to the different um, uh, disciplines that are out there. Yes, you, you have a passion for computer science or cybersecurity. That doesn't go away. For me, I have a passion for science, so I'm going to stay focused on it. But I need to be aware of some of these trends on the technology, especially as it impacts how R&D is done, how clinical research is done. And again, I'm speaking from a, from a life sciences or medical professional point of view, is I need to be aware of that. So, you know, again, how is that data being moved? How can we extract the data? Are we asking the data, are we training the data sets to take, to, with the right set of questions, right, so we can get the right targeted information out? So, again, we have to have a broad-based set of skills to be successful in this internet of medical things, to, to get those next therapies, those next medicines, those next medical devices, so. Thank you. Just to piggyback a little off of that, um, with how he was saying have a diverse background, um, it has been very helpful in my career. I come from a biochemistry background and now am a data scientist, and just being able to understand the background of different data sets that I'm looking at and understanding how that information truly fits into the questions that I'm trying to gather from the data um, will really help you come up with solutions that you know will be effective and that you can have confidence in giving to your clients. Next question, how do you, how are these specialists and experts driving this transformation and what are some of the applied applications? And we'll start with Mr. Austin. Okay, so there's two layers that I'm looking at right now. Uh, firstly, looking at it from an embedded system uh, standpoint. Uh, my background is mainly dealing with uh, military applications and things of that nature. 
So looking at it from a physical standpoint, there's a lot of x-ray technology that's able to identify counterfeit parts. Uh, that's very important is making sure your supply chain uh, stays intact. Uh, the second area is um, secure communications. Uh, as, we, as we were talking about earlier, as far as sending data around, you have to be able to do that securely. Uh, one of the key applications out there is, uh, if there's a protocol out there, for example, MQTT, which operates over uh, TCP IP, and it gives you uh, in uh, IoT devices a way to communicate securely. So once you're passing that data, you can do that in a secure manner. So those are a couple of applications that I'm looking at. Mr. Smiley. Yes, I think one of the key pieces uh, in this whole transformation is uh, reducing risk. Um, I've worked on a project with, uh, with cancer goggles. You can see cancer in it, anywhere in the body. So using that application, um, and uh, data science on the back end of that gives the, um, the patient and the, um, the whole uh, impact of cancer an opportunity to be a lot more successful and impactful. So that's an area of reducing the risk and having a direct impact on the patient. Thank you. And then um, Mr. Christopher. Yeah, so, so I have a website. It's, um, and if you want you to learn a little bit more about the specific application, it's called lomohealth.com. So they actually, through their proprietary technology, AI, machine learning um, oriented platform, they have this, this uh, prescription called Behavioral Rx. And it's really designed to, to help, as I kind of mentioned earlier, improve the patient experience, right? Because we know our healthcare system in the US is um, suboptimal, shall we say, as far as the outcomes and the cost to deliver those outcomes. And so, through this proprietary software, the, we can connect payer, provider, sponsor, patient in an integrated fashion. So there's a lot of data that's moving back and forth, but they have the security protocols, they have the, the processes and the workflows lined out uh, to ensure that protection. But it, uh, again, it improves the patient experience, because at the end of the day, in the Internet of Medical Things is really designed toward improving health outcomes and improving the experience, ensuring that patients, if they're wearing a device or they're taking a medicine, that they're being compliant. Now we're using these various technologies that my computer science and cybersecurity colleagues have brought to bear for us in a patient um, oriented environment, right? Again, it's it's geared toward improving the health outcomes for the patients at a lower cost, quicker rate, and a more positive experience. And again, their specific prescription, if you will, is called Behavioral Rx, is getting in and using their, um, their dynamic platform to be able to get, I would say, get in the minds of the people, but understand the behaviors that are getting in the way of them being more compliant or improve, more importantly, um, those behaviors that are needed to ensure compliance. Again, but again, a lot of data is being moved back and forth uh, between the, the physician, the patient, the provider, payer, and things of that nature. And so that has to be in a well-managed, uh, well-controlled, very um, regulatory compliant and data compliant uh, and secure environment. So there, that's one specific example, gomohealth.com uh, out of New York. And they, they work with the Blue Crosses of the world. They work with the Rutgers Cancer Institute. They work with viruses of the world, the Gileads. So again, it's a, it's a, they're pulling that whole community together. Because that's the big thing with the Internet of Medical, medical Things is 
is improving the health outcomes at a much more cost-effective, because we can't continue to, to add to our GDP uh, as a percentage of our GDP the cost of healthcare. It's just not sustainable. So that's why you're seeing a lot of these um, initiatives within the, the various communities, science community, engineering community, and cybersecurity community. Um, next would be, what are some examples of the applications for solving problems and challenges? And we will start with Mr. Smiley. Yeah, I think one of the key examples is wearable devices. Um, and with wearable devices, we also have a, um, a challenge. Um, you know, people have ability to access those devices and the impact of having access, you know, from a cybersecurity uh, perspective, actually changing some of the uh, outcomes and inputs, like whether it's a heart monitor or, or uh, different things like that. So that's some of the key things that we're always concerned about as far as uh, data scientists and the uh, impact from uh, cybersecurity. Thank you. Mr. Austin? I'm going to look at it from a data perspective. Uh, it's all about having access to your data. Uh, whether it's in the cloud, whether you're moving data from left to right or from a device. So the key questions that I like to look at, firstly, while you're transmitting that data, who can view it? So you want to make sure you're doing things encrypted and in a secure manner. And as I said previously, there are certain protocols using TLS encryption out there that helps protect your data and movement. The second area I want to look at is that once your data is stored, whether it's in a cloud, as you all probably know, in cloud environments, uh, you don't necessarily own all your data. Right. So are you going to encrypt the data at rest I mean, who can access that data? So there's different technologies as far as uh, identity, identity and access management that restricts who can access the data and what points of time they can access it. There's a new phenomenon happening in the cybersecurity uh, world today. It's called zero trust. Um, what that basically means is that uh, you don't have the boundaries anymore. Data is everywhere, and you want certain people to access that data. So it's making making sure you're making those decisions on who can access that data, depending on who the person is, depending on what time of day, and those decisions are being made dynamically. So those are the key areas that I look at as far as making sure you can have access to the data and making sure you can have the right people have access to the data. Mr. Jock? Yeah, yeah, so there's one specific example. So if you look at a company called Codeca, actually out of out of Germany, in Switzerland and Austria, but again, it's around e-health, and again, where they're talking about the, the the creation of data, the integration of the different systems out there, both in the healthcare, healthcare provider side of things, as well as the patient side, as well as the sponsor side. So, you know, again, where they, you know, they're a software engineering oriented company, but they have scientists that are helping them ensure that their e-health solutions are fit for purpose, if you will. So, you know, there's an example where, again, I think some of the problems around patient engagement, patient um, experience is being, um, you know, being addressed through specific companies like a Codeca, as an example. Another resource to look at, if you're curious on understanding more about this whole internet of medical things, specifically in the medical devices, because that's generally what we're kind of talking about here. Um, you go into FDA.gov and they have a they have a site called uh, Digital Health Center of Excellence, and they got a lot of rich information and what they're doing and what they're promoting. Again, from a government point of view, but it can help inform where you might be able to fit in or how you could help impact this um, 
I guess you'd call it a crisis that we have in our healthcare system. How do we improve the health outcomes? How do we improve the patient experience? Again, at the end of the day, the Internet of Medical Things is designed primarily toward improving the health outcomes within our healthcare system and improve the patient experience so we have better compliance. Again, I recommend you go into the FDA.gov, into digital health. Um, center of Excellence, and you can get some really good information. And they talk about the regulations, what things you need to consider as you generate these data sets, and, and you manage uh, looking at ways to integrate the different systems, disparate systems that are across these different communities within the, the ecosystem, the healthcare ecosystem. So, long story short, is there's a lot of companies out there that are already in the game, uh, and then there's uh, some government guidance that's um, and centers of excellence that are being created to help drive. Uh, drive us forward in an innovative approach. We being all of us in our roles in that. Thank you. Um, the next question would be, how do consumers, patients, and society benefit from these approaches? Um, we'll go ahead and start with Mr. Austin. So in today's age, everybody has an iPhone. Uh, everybody has some type of mobile device. I think the way consumers benefit from this is being able to integrate all of your uh, medical devices, your phones, and having access to that data. So as we've sort of been foot stomping here is that you have to be able to do that securely. So I think that's the key aspect as we, move, as we continue to move forward in this technology age is just making sure it becomes more mobile. And while it is becoming more mobile, making sure we do that securely. So. Mr. Jock? Yeah, so, so again, another reference point, and again, I'm not trying to overburden you with you know, references, but I think it's important because these are, I mean, hopefully you believe us, we, we feel we're experts in our field, but they have that independent confirmation. So uh, Novartis has this, I would call, leading uh, edge approach to how do they handle all of their data, right? Again, Going back to the central theme here is how is the internet of medical things, how is it improving, driving, accelerating health outcomes for patient providers right, and payers? Uh, so they have this program called Data 42. So the, using their uh, combination of their suppliers, uh, their, their uh, in-house computational folks uh, and IT folks, using their compute power and and uh, services like AWS and uh, Azure and stuff like that to send up and pull down um, targeted pieces of information data to, again, accelerate the development of drugs on their side, it'd be drug development. Using the available information that's out there, right? We've got decades and decades worth of clinical data out there that's not been effectively used just because there's so much of it and how do we get at it? So using this, this Data 42 program or project is how do we get better at um, asking the right questions? Because at the end of the day, you know, there's the big data is really nothing more than, you know, a big library of data sets sitting off in the, the ether there, right? AI comes into play and ML comes into place, but it's only as useful on the question or specific questions you're asking. If you don't ask the right question, you're going to get you're going to just get more garbage out. It's not going to help you accelerate, make those go, no-go decisions. Again, to help accelerate getting to improved health outcomes, improved patient experience, right? So um, No Riders' program is, is again, it's a Data 42 program. 
so we're looking at trying to help them support them in that better again from a scientific point of view but uh, certainly you know when you're dealing with that amount of data especially patient oriented data it has to uh, it has to comply with uh, global data you know privacy regulations uh, data privacy data protection issues and things of that nature as well as the FDA regulations and the EMA regulations and other country-specific regulations around data, personal information, and all that. So that's where we all come together as a cross-functional team to help solve for that problem. The good news is that there's a lot of compute capability out there now. I, I just read an article that Oak Ridge uh, Research down in uh, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and they just crossed a barrier, I don't know, it was like an exapeta million gazillion byte you know, processing uh, point operation. So that's, that's a lot of quick calculation, and that's what we're going to need in order to, again, accelerate, make quicker go-no-go -no -go decisions, ask the right questions of the data out there um, so that we get really specific target information so we can target our research efforts, product development efforts uh, in a much more cost-effective, timely um, uh, fashion, but in a data-secure uh, environment, if you will. Long story short, that's... Okay, Mr. Smiley. Yes, uh, I think one of the key pieces is, as we've used in, in the past is that we have to do with uh, artificial empowered uh, uh, clinical trials, which was used in this whole COVID uh, effort, which got us a, uh, a vaccine a lot quicker than it would uh, have taken, at least, especially like five or six years ago, and also the uh, impact on the patient themselves and uh, also cost the cost of, um, uh, that it takes to do the evaluation of patients and the impact of it is it's definitely being reduced because of artificial intelligence. Thank you. Next question would be, what role is digital health playing and how is it helping to transform healthcare? Um, I will actually start out with this. Um, I have a background with working in a mental health and substance abuse clinic, and I could directly see um, some of the effects of digital health, just starting with patient outcomes. Um, we had several clinics all over the Eastern Shore and being able to monitor patients that maybe would go in between two um, clinics, just when they got different diagnosis, um, making sure they were up to date, that they were going up to the insurance payer and coming back at the same time. Um, that's a lot different than when we had paper charts and that process could take anywhere from like weeks to months instead of that being done basically overnight and the patient getting a bill. Then a lot of times we work with um, Medicare and Medicaid. So being able to um, have that quick response and making sure patients can receive care instead of having a gap in care possibly because they cannot pay. We also did have some IoT devices that were in our clinic that did things like monitor certain drugs that were held on property to make sure that they were temperature controlled because if they were outside of that temperature, they would not be as effective. So just even like simple, small things like that really transformed patient outcomes and made sure that our patients had what they needed to be able to continue on their lives in a healthy manner. Um, next, we will go to Mr. Jacques. So Last year, I was at a conference called, actually, Digital Health, um, and a lot of a lot of cool things are happening in that area. So, there is a I think it's Parkinson's disease where they've come up with a new device where, and I'm talking about more from an application point of view, um, where they actually uh, in, 
kind of affix or embed a basically a, an electrical shock device, but it's connected through a a smart device. So if based off of the conditions, if it looks like an individual is having trouble walking, which typically is one of the consequences of Parkinson's, it will send a signal, and it's almost a continuous signal, that you can modulate using your phone, right, through this application to help adjust. And if for some reason the patient's not able to do that, so it helps with their gait, right, to make sure there's a bit more steady gait and they don't fall and break arms and stuff like that. But you can use, it's an all application driven, so it's, it sends a signal, right, to hear or adjusts the frequency as needed in order to help modulate the electrical signals that are going on in your brain. But again, there's a, a really great example of the use of a digital health in a specific type of medical condition. So, um, and again, that's it's a company out of the UK, out of, out of Cambridge. Mr. Austin? So yeah, I want to take it from a different perspective. Uh, I just recently lost my grandmother to cancer. Um, my, I have family members who were caring for her uh, as she went through that process. And uh, digital technology was very important during that phase because they were able to monitor certain vitals, uh, quickly contact the doctors if anything was needed. But it was very important for the standpoint because as families are going through different types of medical situations, uh, you're already grieving, right? Uh, not being able to get in contact with a doctor and not understanding what's going on uh, with your loved one can be a very impactful process. So I think just um, the digital healthcare and sort of integrating and into people who are helping and suffering along with the patients, I think it's really transforming itself. Mr. Smiley? Yes, I think one of the key things is uh, tying into like video conferencing capability and access to actual uh, physician and the uh, care staff almost immediately has really transformed um, how we uh, take care of patients and um, how they're actually evaluated and the impact of that. So um, the, the video teleconferencing capability, um, especially like an application like Zoom was just in time, especially uh, during this whole COVID uh, epidemic. Um, next will be, can you speak to examples of measurable progress in the battle with cancer using nanotechnology particles and disruptive technologies and innovations? We will start with Mr. Jaw. Aggregation-induced emission. What that means is you have basically a, a chemical entity that you decorate with a cancer destroying, cancer cell destroying molecule. And the beauty of this is that you um, ingest this nanoparticle, right? It's this nanoparticle and it has the, um, the cancer fighting agent on it. And instead of having to go into an oncosurgeon surgeon to get the cancer extracted, surgically removed, you can it's still experimental, still R&D, so they're still proven out and they have to go through clinical trials and all that. But the, the underlying logic here is that you inject this nanoparticle, which has that cancer-fighting um, entity on it. And what you do is you, you take a, and it's tuned, these compounds are tuned to the specific type of cancer that you're targeting, right? Your system will pick that up and say, well, it's just, okay, the cancer cell, because you've got these cancer, you know, entities float with your resin, but it'll pick that up and it'll hone in on that and it'll go 
the, the nanoparticle go to that cancer area, gets ingested by the cancer cells, and you hit it with a specific wavelength that that compound is tuned to, that will then release that cancer-fighting cell, and then it works its magic, it destroys the cancer cell, and then hopefully people go into remission. So that's a more of a true hardcore chemistry application. I don't know how that relates to Internet of Medical Things, but I'm sure the data that they use to generate that, obviously that's where you're using the data sets and secure and all that, you're pulling the data down from that. You're asking the, the information the right question, right, to design the program. Um, although not specific to cancer, unrelated to that, again, where I think data scientists, cybersecurity people, where you all probably fit, is you think of like the Moderna vaccine for COVID-19. I don't know if you know this, but a good share of that research was actually done in silico. It was done through computer modeling, through the routines and the software that Moderna, proprietary software they had. But they were able to design this RNA-based vaccine without actually having to get a chemist like me in there and start mixing things together and you know, do that. Um, they were actually able to do a lot of modeling, improve the, the, um, the potential target that they needed for that COVID-19. And then, of course, they did have to do some laboratory stuff, but they didn't have to do as much of that. But again, that's a very high compute, um, very, obviously, they want this proprietary information, so they want to make sure that their data is secure, protected, doesn't get leaked, doesn't get hacked, and someone steal it. We know there's some bad actors out there that are, that are doing that. So that's, that's another example. Well, not specific to cancer, but that's, again, we're using data modeling, uh, computer modeling, established uh, uh, life science, physical science, chemical principles to help design using computer technology, uh, data sets, um, training the data sets to, to look for certain, um, to solve certain parameters, if you will. Um, so that's kind of two examples, right? Mr. Smiley? Yeah, I think one of the key pieces that um, dealing with uh, cancer, um, as I mentioned earlier, we're working this project um, with our cancer goggles and actually to able to identify the uh, actual cells. We use this uh, dye that's put in the body before the uh, operation called LS301. And so my ability to, um, from a data science, machine learning whole piece, ability to gather a lot of the uh, information based on the cells that are, um, that are, that are impacted um, before surgery, during surgery, and after surgery becomes very important. Thank you. Mr. Austin? So I'm not a medical professional, but I'm a cybersecurity uh, uh, expert. So my job is to make sure uh, as these researchers and things, first thing that they need is a collaborative environment. Typically, when you do research, you, you're, you're collaborating with a number of people. So making sure that environment is set up for them securely. Uh, the second part is they come up with these types of uh, research technologies and breakthroughs. That's intellectual property, right? So um, a lot of people are trying to steal those types of things uh, to advance their uh, cause. So being able to secure the types of research that they're doing, and that's how cybersecurity fits into this whole cross-functional paradigm. So. Thank you. What is the role of AI and machine learning in R&D, and how is it transforming product development? Start with Mr. Smiley. 
um, especially in uh, R&D uh, whole perspective and in, in, uh, in, 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 in and outside of the government, uh, artificial intelligence and, and uh, machine learning has improved across the entire field. Uh, the, the work that we were able to do and to like solve problems, even something um, that we've spent a lot of time, in, at least in the medical field, with heart disease and cancer, the uh, advancement in those uh, actual product development and uh, impact is just tremendous. And this, um, especially when in the last three to five years, so many companies and organizations has invested in this because a lot of the problems, especially um, as I mentioned with uh, heart disease, diabetes and all, a lot of that is being solved. Uh, and, and it's uh, become easier to identify because of all of this research. Thank you. Um, Mr. Austin? So I'm going to look at it from an embedded system perspective. Um, when you look at AI and machine learning, a lot of these devices, depending on what's being computed on the device, uh, there can be degradation, uh, any types of issues that come along with those devices. So it's a big data problem. So being able to understand the data that's coming from these devices and understanding those data sets help improve going forward. So that's how I look at it from an embedded system perspective. Thank you, Mr. Jock. So the role of AI machine learning is and will be and continue to be and will accelerate is reducing the time it takes to develop the new medical products, the new medicines, to accelerate the, the, the process of bringing uh, life-saving in a lot of cases, certainly life-enhancing and improving uh, medicines and medical <coughs> devices to patients. So um, that's really the role. And again, it gets back to, we got a lot of data out there. It's not a question of data. It's a question of interrogating the data in the right, with the right set of questions so you can get the right answer to help target, to help accelerate that, that, that process. So it's gone are the days where you're gonna you're gonna have a team of 50 60 70 scientists in their lab with their white coats mixing their chemicals doing their tests it's going to be going back to that moderna example from pfizer or biotech and companies like that where they're using data that's already out there plus their own proprietary information and their own proprietary software and systems to model potential new life-saving, life-enhancing, life-improving uh, medicines and medical devices. So there's going to be a greater and greater dependency and reliance and need on AI and machine learning to accelerate that process. Uh, we can't afford, and again, it gets back to my earlier statement, we can't, as a country, and, that, and we're not the only country, by the way, we can't continue, especially as populations age and we live longer, um, we can't continue to keep throwing money at the problem. We have to use the available technology. We have to use our cybersecurity professionals, our data science professionals, our scientists to help accelerate that, to make sense out of all that data that's out there uh, to accelerate the, the process. Um, so that's, that's where I see AI and machine learning is playing a critical role in, in the Internet of Medical Things. Um, Another site that I would recommend you go to, because they actually have some very cool projects I think this group would be interested in, it's called Pistoia Alliance. So it's a combination of uh, private, public, mixed, public-private type of um, organizations. 
and there's a couple projects um, that that I think would be of, of, of interest to this group out here that certainly your skills would help solve and accelerate the completion of these projects. One, project one is natural process language, NLP, obviously, use case data, database project. And if you go into their site and just call that up, there you can see the projects they're working on and where you might be able to fit into to helping that if you have an interest. The other project is called, and I have to admit, I don't know what IDMP, uh, ontology project, I don't know what the acronym stands for, but it sounds pretty cool. Um, but anyhow, again, on how you organize the data, how you how you organize your systems to be able to make, you know, make that, uh, make that all work. So again, this is a pharmaceutical company um, driven initiative along with some key you know, tier one, tier, you know, top tier research universities that are engaged in this project, um, as well as, you know, other private companies. Um, but it's some pretty cool, cool projects. They're kind of pulling the resources, um, both from a compute capability as well as from a data set point of view as well, to help solve these problems, accelerate the decision-making problem, get these, you know, accelerate getting these new medicines and these new medical devices and combination products to the patients in need. So, PistoiaAlliance.org, and those are the two projects. There's a bunch of other projects as well, but I thought those are probably the two that most for me. But companies like Amgen, Zapata, Thermo Fisher, Takeda, Cineos Health, I mean, those are, you know, Roche, you know, it runs the gambit, so. Would you mind spelling that, please? Yeah, Pistoia is, yeah, it's not an easy one, it's actually an Italian uh, town, but it's P-I-S-T-O-I-A. Alliance.org. Thank you. So, but it's pretty, pretty cool stuff. And then again, the, the FDA Digital Health Center of Excellence would be a good site to go into as well. You can see what kind of projects, things that you need to consider based off, of, uh, you know, based off of uh, you know the FDA, the federal government's point of view. And again, they have similar type of initiatives in Europe as well, and and, uh, and in the Asian markets as well, Japan and so forth like that. Thank you for that. Now we're going to be opening up the floor for audience questions. I just ask when you do ask those questions, if possible, please come to the mic so everyone can hear you. Guess I'll break the ice. Good morning, gentlemen, and thank you, Dominique, for doing an excellent job. My name is Ted Adams. I'm a retired engineer from the DOD Aerospace Industry. It's wonderful working on this technology, but one of the things we ran into when it came to leading edge R&D were two things. Once the bean counters got involved, what ultimately became available to our customer was different than what we envisioned as engineers. And also, Congress. How do you keep Congress abreast of what you're trying to do? Because the internet just took them by storm. And these are the folks that are gonna make policies that allow these devices to be put in our bodies and to be used. Thank you. Okay, I start, you know, um, great question, and especially like, how do you keep Congress uh, involved and uh, up to date, you know, like um, a lot of those pieces uh, has been st started with like DARPA and there's actually a, uh, a DARPA for healthcare uh, now that's uh, been into place uh, since last year, 2022, that you might take a look at as a, uh, as a start, but also uh, use other um, mechanism. Uh, there's um, uh, communication with the, uh, with customers from an FDA perspective that you could uh, get involved and make your voice uh, heard. And I can speak to it from a governor's perspective. Anytime you bring in 
this type of technology to bear, it's important that you identify that you are meeting the regulations that are out there. So with HIPAA, for example, uh, is really big on securing customer data from confidentiality, integrity, and availability. So being able to show that you are meeting those types of laws uh, as you bring those new technologies out. Well, I, I don't know if I can speak from a government perspective since I haven't actually worked in that um, many, many years. But um, I, I think you know it gets back to the classic, you know, the, the stronger and clearer you can make your business case. Um, it's not going to prevent the bean counters from still doing their bean counting thing. I mean, that's just that's what they're that's what they're tasked to do, right? But I think if you can tie in use cases and you can clearly identify, and my colleagues in Ackland have heard, heard me probably say this at nauseum, where you can quantify those use cases into an economic value that's being generated. So in the case of the topic we're talking about, Internet of Medical Things where you can show that there's going to be an economic impact to the patient, the payer, and the provider, where you're, you're saying, okay, we're going to spend a million dollars on this, but you know what, we're going to get $10 million worth of benefit. So the stronger you can make your business case, I think it'll make, it, make some of the obstacles a little bit lower. It's not going to remove them, but it could make that. So I think the stronger you can make your business case where you can you can provide that economic value add or the economic value that's being created as a result of that product or that engineering design of that new medicine, I think the stronger, the higher your, your chances of success. And, and I don't care whether it's government, whether it's you know private or other entities, in my experience. So. In the healthcare sector, there's been a lot of data breaches. <coughs> There'll be like hundreds of data breaches, and then every data breach, there's hundreds of thousands of people who have their data compromised. By having our data all synced with all the hospitals nearby, does that bring a bigger, um, a bigger thing to be scared about? I'll be the first one to take that one. So um, I can't speak from a fear perspective, but at least from uh, the data breach perspective, firstly, again, there's laws that govern as far as the communication timelines. If you have a data breach, uh, you're required to communicate to those people impacted. Uh, but you bring up a great point in the sense that as we become more digital and there's more data out there, we are putting ourselves at risk more. Uh, so we got to make sure we're just doing the right fundamentals from a cybersecurity perspective. And I think the gentleman's earlier question about the bean counters, a lot of times uh, cybersecurity is not your mission, right? So sometimes the first thing to get cut is like, hey, you cyber guys, you're too expensive. So you may try to cut corners there in order to get your product to market, and then that could put you at more risk uh, as far as your data exposure and things of, the, of that nature. So as we move forward, that is a huge risk. Uh, I don't think it's anything to fear. I think that comes with any type of new technologies being out there. But there are some great things being done to make sure you can do uh, do those types of transactions securely. So, is yes, to add to that, anytime you can um, add some layer of uh, security or actually knowledge of how, where, and when your data is compromised, you know, you put those uh, processes into place. And as mentioned, um, make for sure that you um, notify the actual clients, the customers that are out there. And we, um, we're just into this whole area where 
so much is so much is digitized, even in the uh, in our homes and the uh, in the impact of that that data. We just have to more continuously be aware and make sure that we get the right training and knowledge about the systems that we're connected to. Um, a second part of my question is when we're looking at newer technology that's connected to the person to regulate their health, like for example, if you have a pacemaker, well, I guess you're not connecting a pacemaker to your phone, but type of technologies that keep your health to maintain your homeostasis, are there concerns about having people hack into those and then um, making your systems go haywire? Yeah, most definitely. Um, th th that is a concern. Uh, as we talked about earlier, uh, again, you gotta go through the fundamentals. So I always like to start at what I call layer one, and that's the physical device. And again, a big thing now is supply chain. Uh, there, uh, between the different countries that are out there, uh, they're just flooding the market with different types of counterfeit parts, whether it's network devices or internet or medical thing devices. You gotta be wary of that and how you identify that. But then the second part to your question is, once you have that device, who can access it? So making sure you got the right authentication and access protocols in place to make sure that uh, only the authorized people can access it. And again, I mentioned earlier this whole zero trust concept that's coming out there. It's just making sure, hey, you might be the right person, but it's not the right time. So being able to make those types of decisions to say, hey, you're not authorized to make these types of changes, that is becoming more critical as time moves forward. So especially with these uh, health critical devices. And the uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology have processes into place and recommendations as far as securing certain types of devices and technology that's uh, in place. A lot of the uh, organizations or uh, vendors use this uh, approach, and but you can take a look at what standards that they have out there and make sure that your device have, um, have that uh, recommendation. And also the computer um, um, emergency our response team uh, there out of uh, Carnegie Mellon uh, University. They provide updates and recommendations also that you could take a look at and make sure that you're in compliance and they will actually uh, send you updates based on your hardware or software that you might be concerned about. Hi everyone, my name is Dayton Rhymes. I'm part of the Actonic Company. Uh, my question is for all three of you, all four of you. <laughs> um, Chris, you mentioned that the day and age of just being a laboratory scientist or just being a data scientist is long and gone. You have to be versed in all the different types of disciplines to be effective in pushing the needle going forward with all this. So in your opinion, what is the most efficient and effective way to become versed in those different disciplines and how, what's the cadence to stay up with the trends? Yeah, so, so I don't I don't know if I have a necessarily an efficient way of doing this. I think it's just a good old you gotta get curious. There's lots of available information out there. So if there's a specific area that you want to focus in on, and I wouldn't try to boil the ocean. So maybe you want to learn a little bit more about some cutting edge research. What's happening in the the chemical research environment, right? What are some of the tools? Start there and then you kind of build and, and go to conferences where there tends to be a, a much more diverse audience. So I go back to this digital health conference. You had scientists there, you had engineers there, you had the cyber people there, you had the finance people there. You know, so you, I would go to those types of conferences that are um, represented by individuals from different departments within organizations, right? Government, public, private type of entities. I think 
and then just network. I think that's a good way to start. And then you say, okay, right now I want to focus on this specific area. But now you have contacts to say, okay, when I'm ready to move off of that, studying that topic, then I can move around it. So I, I think it's just, you know, just investing the time, getting curious, and, and getting intellectually invested in whatever that area is. So. For me, I started off as a software developer uh, coming out of college. Uh, from there, I went to cyber. And it, my recommendation is to find the area that you're passionate about. Uh, once you find that area, for me, it was software coding. Then from there, I expanded and had opportunities to work different pro projects. But the way my growth came is really learning why I was doing the job. At first, it was purely just technical. But then I, I got to a point in my career where I was like, it's about the customer. It's about they're doing this for a reason. So really understanding that reason really helped me grow from there. And then again, just follow your passions. Yeah, and also, um, as I mentioned, being impactful. And I started off uh, in networking and I migrated also to cyber and on to uh, uh, now data science and that whole area. And, so many of us are going to be migrating into uh, quantum computing, but also just be uh, learn. It's, uh, this whole field is all about learning and, and growing and being impactful. So uh, just stay involved. Make for sure that you reach out to like uh, people that are interested in some of the things, but also take a look at people that are a little bit off uh, as far as your field and concentration and stuff. And uh, stay involved. Stay involved. Um, I quite personally took a roundabout path. My undergrad is actually in biochemistry, and then I wandered on into data science recently. So I would just say, as always, stay curious. Look for certification programs. Um, there's plenty of academic research papers, and I mean, YouTube's always a great place to start. Smiley, long time no see, how you been? I know. <laughs> uh, sometimes serendipity is a good place to start learning. And this morning on my way in, there was a post on LinkedIn that was from February 10th, uh, and it reads, North Korean hackers targeting healthcare and rent with ransomware to fund its operations. State-backed hackers from North Korea are conducting ransomware attacks against healthcare and critical infrastructure facilities to fund illicit activities. U.S. and South Korean cybersecurity intelligence agencies warn in a joint advisory. The attacks which demand cryptocurrency ransoms in exchange for recovery access to encrypted files are designed to support the North Korean national level priorities and objectives. Ask that question because Mr. Austin, your cybersecurity, Mr. Smiley, you and I go back, way back in the day. This is interesting, what you're talking about. So what we were normally talking about for the first part of this was just healthcare, Internet of Things, devices, but what they're offering. So this is uh, NSA and some other FBI and some other folks saying, yeah, but there's other national security priorities that are associated with healthcare. Apparently, they're even hacking big machines like MRIs. And so not just individual devices, but large machines and not just databases. Do you have any thought about that, particularly when we're talking about IoT, yeah. national security? Um, you know, the um, national security, I've worked in the intelligence community for a while, to say at least. Um, national security in, in the healthcare has always been uh, a priority uh, for uh, several organizations that I, I work with. Um, you know, the big piece is that, you know, we, we have to take a look in, in securing our, our healthcare records, you know, um, 
securing the uh, the impact as we have we've we've done with so much uh, other critical intelligence whole perspective and that's what it really comes down to uh, and then who how and where people have access to this data we have to like make for sure that it's not something that's just sitting out on, on some server that's not protected or in the impact of that so and even within the cloud so you bring up a good point there. Uh, you are seeing a rise in ransomware attacks, and the reason why you're seeing the rise because they're profitable, right? So if I'm a, if I'm a company, and let's say if I'm a mid-level company, and you put whatever dollar amount on it, uh, and my mission is to create some type of uh, medical devices or any type of medical breakthroughs, uh, cyber is not how much of my budget is going to cyber first and foremost, right? So that comes into account. The second part is, is that if I'm an attacker, uh, typically those types of companies may not have uh, the most secure networks. I work for Raytheon, we put millions to billions into this thing, but if I'm a medium-sized company, I don't have those types of resources to put into it. So now if I'm an attacker, I come in and uh, I encrypt your key data, at that point, I'm faced with a decision. And that decision is, do I pay X number amount of dollars to get my data back, or you can potentially put me out of business. So they're really exploiting that sort of paradigm there, especially when you come to um, medical devices and things of that nature and other industries where cybersecurity and things like that may not be your forefront mission. So you're not putting the budget there. So that's what's making it more attractive. And I guess it's a, I know from a United States perspective, we have a policy to say, hey, don't pay the ransom. But I wonder how many people follow that policy. But yeah, it is becoming more attractive. There is a rise in ransomware attacks and because it is profitable, so. I do have a quick follow-up then. It seems to me that the business model in personal identifiable information we need to read to think about that because that's the basics. That's the basis of all of this stuff. It's who am I, my information attached to Ty Smith, related to that, all of the healthcare information. So maybe the business model needs to change to think about the value of personal information versus these large data sets. What is the value of that? Yeah, and, and that's a good point. And the way I like to look at it is as a cybersecurity professional, we can get expensive. Uh, we need to get to a point where the, where the industry is going now, where you got these number of companies that are out there. How do we design secure infrastructures and architectures at an affordable rate? Mm. So we haven't gotten there yet, but that's a big deal. So how, how do we make it more affordable to secure your networks? Just someone that's not a cybersecurity person. So I just <laughs> I'm qualify, I'm gonna qualify my, my comments here, but as an outsider, it seems to me, to, to your, your, your question, there's there is somewhat of an established model out there. You think of the finance market. Exactly. They get that thing, I mean, it's not foolproof, but it's pretty locked down, right? And they're making transactions across the world, even across certain borders that are less than friendly countries, yes. right? And are able to protect that type of personal information. So I think there is a potential model out there that we can look to. Now, how affordable it is, whether Congress or others would be able to get their head around that and create a standard, if you will, for the healthcare industry and get all the people in that very disjointed market to agree is a different matter altogether. But I think there is a model out there that's proven itself that maybe we can look into as it relates to healthcare-oriented information. So just, just last thing, just a comment, not a question. So expensive could not be expensive, but it could become expensive. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
you can price people out the market it, it becomes too expensive so hi good morning everyone my name is Miranda Merritt I'm a senior dual degree chemistry and biomedical engineering major from Georgia Tech and Mr. John, I noticed a couple times today you mentioned the outcomes of patients. You said that a couple times. In my public health systems class, we're learning about the operations of our health system and comparing it to other countries. And right now, the US, we focus on acute and emergency care, so basically finding solutions for problems that people are already coming in with. So I ask, how can you really change the outcomes of the patients and also what is the most important outcome that needs to be changed and fixed if we cannot change the type of system that we have, possibly moving from acute and emergency to more wellness and well-being? Yeah, yeah and I think that kind of gets back, I mean, I, I'm not an expert in, in this, you know, medical health outcomes. I'm not trained in that. But from my experience, from a scientist's point of view, we, we have this, this entity that I mentioned earlier, GOMO Health, where they have a behavioral RX to help change the behaviors of the patient and how they interact and how we can make it easier for that patient to interact with our admittedly broken healthcare system, right? Let's put cards on the table, we have a broken healthcare system. So I think where we can is leverage the technologies out there, some really powerful, great technology, really smart people that can help um, help us start to change the behaviors um, that are detrimental to patients getting the right outcomes. So it really starts with changing the behaviors, right? And I think there's the use of technology, I think, has a critical point in doing that. So ease of access, right? You know, I think of you know, a study um, that was actually out of Scripps Institute and sponsored by Genentech, but they used a platform called Parallel 6, which allowed patients that had macular degeneration, if they wanted to participate in a clinical study, they downloaded the app, all the forms that were FDA compliant was right there on their phone, and they can say, hey, I, I live in San Diego, and I want to participate in a clinical trial for macular degeneration. What physicians or clinics are participating? So you can have that. Again, that's a, an example of how you can start to change the behaviors using the available technology we have. Right? So that's, that's just going to be a slow process, but I think that's, that's my opinion. Thank you. Okay, so Mr. Austin, you were talking about securing your data with cloud systems like Microsoft, uh, Azure, mm -hmm. Amazon Web Services. Mm -hmm. You can store your own data yourself for free but it may not be very secure. Mm -hmm. Or you can store it with those platforms and you have to pay those platforms and you may not own all of it. So how do you tackle the economic discrepancy in either storing your own data for free and it not being uh, secure, or storing it and it being secure, but you can't afford to pay? Yeah, so that's a great question uh, as far as the pricing of it all. Um, so firstly, just looking at it from a security perspective is what type of data are you trying to store? So that's the first question. So if it's some type of uh, the PI or healthcare information, you typically want to put it in a very secure protocol where it's AES 256 or something even higher than that. So really understanding the encryption that you have to have. But now secondly, you bring up the cloud model. 
there are different types of cloud models out there. You know, you got your infrastructure as a service, you have your application as a service, and depending on what cloud model you choose says what type of responsibility you have over the data. So you wanna make sure you take that into consideration. So if it's one where, where my data has to be secure at a very high level, I'm probably gonna choose a cloud service model where I, where I own the data and I get to encrypt it myself and things of that nature. But the more you have access to, they can get more expensive so that you gotta look at that from a budgetary perspective. And to be honest, it is a big deal in cybersecurity nowadays, right? Because the more secure you make it, it comes with a price tag, so. And, and also to add to that, you know, you have to take a look at, you know, who your customers are today and who your customers are going to be in the future. Because if you share that data or you have it in an environment where it can be exposed or it's gotten exposed, usually like if you have it on your own device, you probably, um, it's probably going to be exposed um, in, one way or, in one way or another. So you're definitely gonna have to take a look at that and then take a look and see, you know, how you can maybe um, take a look at some of the um, devices or tools that are available that can, you know, look at your data, uh, give you some type of feedback as in if it, it's been uh, attacked or, um, or shared with someone, shared with someone else, uh, that, that is gonna be important also because even with that in a whole personal protection whole environment, it's, it's becoming very expensive. It's, it's all becoming um, expensive because it's all, um, it's all dealing with how we're gonna protect the data itself. Good morning, I'll be brief. I recognize we might be close to or at time. Uh, Senator Colonel Matt Bowman, uh, Headquarters Marine Corps, I'm serving in a uh, systems engineering role and also uh, serving on the board of directors for the National Naval Officers Association, uh, a diversity affinity group for the sea services. Uh, my question's in relation to uh, equity and inclusion, and I'm glad the last question kind of started talking about cost. Um, as we move forward, and we've talked a lot about the Internet of Things, is there is there discussion within the this industry uh, about those users who may be disadvantaged by lack of Internet, lack of reliable Internet, um, or who may work in a facility uh, classified facility where they, they're not able to have uh, networked or Bluetooth devices but still need those um, healthcare, uh, healthcare devices to be able to monitor, to help with their hearing aids, to be able to monitor their, their diabetes. So is there a conversation about a hybrid approach that is not actually connected to the Internet of Things that can still allow for those uh, future patients to be able to receive the care that they need? Okay. I'm going to kick it over to you, my okay, friend. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's a great question with multiple layers. Uh, firstly, about the inclusion uh, piece of it. Uh, as you probably already know, cybersecurity, we need people, right? There's a shortage of people uh, out there. One way to get it is that as minorities, we are underrepresented uh, uh, people in this field. So I think the way you do that it's real exposure. Uh, me growing up, uh, I didn't know anything about computers or software initially, but it was when I was 11 years old, uh, I met my cousin. He was a computer programmer, and I got excited about it. So I think that's the way we have to drive it to get more uh, underrepresented populations into the field. But the second one part you brought up as far as being in secure areas, yeah, I work in skiffs and things of that nature where you can't have uh, Bluetooth, de Bluetooth devices and things of that nature. Now there is a process if it's for medical reasons that you can get it approved. 
But to as we've already discussed, that's an attack vector, right? If I'm a hacker and I know that, hey, so-and-so got this pacemaker, whatever, and you're now going into a classified area, how can I hack into that to try to steal data? So that's a, that's a really uh, amazing uh, point there, topic there, but I don't, I don't know where it's going at this point, but it is a fascinating topic, so. And I, I would like to add that the growth of this whole Internet of Things and the um, the impact, um, you know, just having access to, to the Internet, no, doesn't make any difference whether you're in a classified environment or not. Um, but there's there's programs out there uh, that that um, mostly like regional uh, actually impacted, you know, based on like what state you're in or what county, uh, city, you have to take a look and see what those programs are. And even within the federal government, there might be another location that that type of person could go work and have access access to. So you, you make for sure that you look at those also. Hi, uh, I, I kind of just wanted to ask a brief question, kind of building off what he was talking about with, uh, you know, we, we have systematic racism throughout our country and people with more resources and less resources. Um, and I'm sure, you know, like hospitals in impoverished areas are more likely to become victims of ransomware attacks. So how do we create equity for those um, groups that don't have necessarily like the tax funding from property taxes in their area? So that's a, that's a great question because we've been talking a lot about cost here from a, at least a data protection and cybersecurity professional uh, perspective. I think one of the ways we do that uh, is you need government help. Right. Anytime you got underrepresented or underfunded uh, areas, uh, you also look at the legislation to say oh, what type of government funding can you get for scenarios like that. Uh, I think secondly, and this is one thing I try to do, uh, is giving back. You know, as people who uh, who are in this profession, and maybe partnering with some of those organizations in your community to at least give direction. I sit on a number of advisory boards. Uh, where I'm not necessarily doing the work, but I'm advising them, uh, here, here are the types of things you need to do uh, in order to uh, make your data more secure. Here's the type of funding you need to go after and things of that nature. So I think for professionals, just giving back and then from a legislature perspective, make sure you're voting and things of that nature. So. Yeah, I, I can't speak from a cybersecurity, but I, I will say that as far as helping fund some of these um, areas that are you know, with underrepresented populations that are struggling with funding to, to, to harden their systems, if you will. So in the clinical research area, there's a big initiative. In fact, one of our partners that, that I've recently engaged, we have a DEI initiative to encourage uh, better uh, clinical research trial participation. And although it's not cybersecurity oriented, what my point is is that if we're working with these hospitals in the areas that you mentioned, that's a source of funding. A source of funding could potentially be uh, directed toward creating, hardening the systems, right, to protect that data. So it's not maybe a direct line type of funding, but it's an indirect way by getting underrepresented groups uh, more participatory in the clinical research. Uh, studies that are going on in, in our our particular organization, our particular company has got a, this alliance with this company that's targeting that exactly. So it's a funding source, doesn't address the IT side, but that's one of the things to think about as well. But Thank again, you. Also, we need government support too. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you everyone for attending. If you need to get in contact with any of the panel members, they're available through the app. Thank you so much. <laughs>